This episode is a bit of a read, but everyone can use the good stretch. The person I am focusing on in this episode is not a criminal, but the way an epidemic was and still is being handled could be considered criminal in my opinion. I had a plan for what I wanted this episode to cover, but I scrapped it at the last minute. While I was researching for last week's episode, I came across a letter Elton John had written a couple of years ago. I will mention that four years ago, John gave a speech that caused people to feel offended, but it appears he has learned from that. What he wrote in the 2020 letter is not new information to a lot of people, but reading it again guided me into this direction I am taking this episode in. I will read the first part of the letter that was published to The Atlantic. For those unfamiliar, The Atlantic is a magazine and publication with multiple platforms here in the United States. The first part of the letter reads, the color of your skin should not determine the quality of your health. But in the United States, the HIV and AIDS epidemic is exasperated by racism, bias, and discrimination. As America continues its long overdue reckoning with racism and systemic injustice, we must address the devastating impact of the disease on the Black community. An end to the AIDS epidemic can only be achieved through dignity, respect, love, and compassion for all. Okay, so you might be wondering why Sir Elton John is targeting Americans with this letter seen as he is British. But he founded the nonprofit organization, the Elton John AIDS Foundation, in 1992 in the United States. And he established another office the following year in the United Kingdom. The offices are located in New York City and London. John decided to found this organization after being affected by the deaths of two people from HIV and AIDS. One was the American teenage boy, Ryan White and the other was his friend, the lead singer of the British rock band Queen, Freddie Mercury. The EJAF is committed to overcoming the stigma, discrimination, and neglect that prevents the end of AIDS. Welcome to Most Fashionable Crime, a fashion-related true crime podcast hosted by me, Taryn. The theme of this season is how... To stay on trend, make sure you sign up for the newsletter, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and follow the podcast on Twitter at Most Fashionable, and on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Most Fashionable Crime. If you want to discuss the episodes more, there is a discussion group on Facebook and a Reddit community, and there are both links in the notes. Thank you so much to the people that support this podcast. I appreciate you all so much. If you'd like to support as well, there's a link in the notes. You can support Most Fashionable Crime for free by sharing this podcast leaving it a five-star rating or a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and listen engage on social media. While you're listening right now, share that you are to your Instagram story. Because I know fashion history, I know that HIV and AIDS hit the fashion industry pretty hard in the 1980s and 1990s. HIV and AIDS is the reason why the awareness and knowledge of some fashion designers does not go past museum exhibits, archival pieces, and maybe a mention in a book or article here and there. I actually came across another article published on April 25th, 2015 by The Atlantic when working on this episode. This article was written by Kimberly Christman Campbell and is titled, the day AIDS hit the fashion industry. The focus of this article is the anniversary of the death of a fashion designer whose name you probably don't recognize, Chester Weinberg. 
The Parsons alum would return to his alma mater as a guest lecturer and visit from 1955 to 1985. During this time as a mentor at Parsons, he helped Donna Karen, Isaac Mizrahi, and Mark Jacobs. Weinberg was also a very talented designer and he launched his own label in 1966 and was considered to be a household name in the 1960s and the 1970s. His designs were worn by Dionne Warwick and Barbara Streisand. Weinberg won a Cody Award in 1970. The Cody American Fashion Critics Award was active from 1943 until 1984. These awards and the ceremonies were considered to be the fashion industry equivalent of the Oscars. His label shuttered in 1975, and in 1978, he joined Calvin Klein as a consultant, and he eventually became the design director of Calvin Klein Jeans in 1981. On April 24, 1985, became the first high-profile fashion designer in the United States to die from AIDS. I was a bit surprised at first to learn that homophobia was so prevalent in fashion circles during this time, but after remembering the history during that time, that feeling waned. I knew that some designers and people working in different roles in the industry did remain closeted, but I learned a lot of them did so in order to keep their jobs or to keep their businesses running. There's the fear that publicly acknowledging that a member of the fashion design community was gay would, in the midst of all things ignorance and hysteria surrounding the HIV AIDS crisis, would be detrimental to the fashion industry. The idea was that if it was made public knowledge that a designer was gay or had AIDS, that would be the end of their professional career, and this probably would have been true. What really surprised me was that there were attempts to erase early members of the fashion community who died of AIDS from history. If you're interested in reading more about fashion and its response to the AIDS epidemic, I link to the Vogue piece by Philip McCarty titled An Oral History of Fashion's Response to the AIDS Epidemic. McCarty interviewed 25 people to highlight the fashion side of the AIDS epidemic. Missing from the piece is Andre Leon Talley, who passed away earlier this year. It's not surprising that he's missing from this given the relationship he had with Vogue in the end. In his memoir, The Chiffon Trenches, he does mention his relationships with friends and colleagues that passed away as a result of the virus. So while Weinberg was the first notable designer to pass away, he would unfortunately not be the last. When you think of fashion in the United States, I highly doubt Pittsburgh, Mississippi comes to mind. The city off the Mississippi River, currently known for its four casinos, is the birthplace of Patrick Kelly. Kelly was born on September 24, 1954. Patrick was the middle child, and he and his two brothers were raised by his mother, Letha May, a home economics teacher, and his father, Jamie Sr., who worked multiple jobs, including one as a fisherman and another one as a cab driver. Kelly's mother, Ethel Rainey, worked as a maid, seamstress, and cook, or a domestic, for those familiar with the term, for various upper-class white families. His grandmother had a significant impact on his upbringing and his future career. His grandmother also stepped in and took on a stronger role with helping raise Kelly and his brothers after his father passed away in 1969. I read a story about Kelly's childhood. When he was six years old, his grandmother brought home a fashion magazine. While Kelly was looking through it, he noticed that there weren't any black models featured and he asked his grandmother why. His grandma Ethel explained to the six-year-old Kelly that designers didn't make time for black models and Kelly decided then he was going to change that. As a child, when Kelly would lose the buttons off his clothes, his grandmother would replace them with a random button from her sewing basket, and the button never matched the other ones, and he even got picked on it a bit at school. This laid the foundation for Kelly's feature of repurposing clothes 
as well as using colorful mix match buttons in his design. If you want to see photos of Patrick Kelly's designs, I will add some to the social media accounts as well as the blog. His designs will go on to inspire present day fashion designers like Christopher John Rogers and his namesake label. Kelly's mother, Lisa, and his aunt, Bernard, taught him how to sew, which led to more design and other creative opportunities before he even graduated high school in 1972. In junior high school, he designed and sewed party dresses for friends, and towards the end of high school, he offered to work for free, designing department store windows, and he was also drawing sketches for newspaper advertisements, which is really impressive. After graduating from high school, Kelly headed about 45 minutes to an hour east of his hometown of Pittsburgh to Jackson, Mississippi. There, he attended a historically Black college and university called Jackson State University on scholarship. During his short time there, he studied art and African-American history. Jackson State actually honored Kelly with an exhibit six years ago titled The Patrick Kelly Fashion Exhibit, From Mississippi to New York to Paris and Back. And the mayor of his hometown of Pittsburgh, George Flats Jr., was there, and he just so happens to be a childhood friend of Kelly's. The university also spoke to more childhood friends with Kelly, and even the current young designer he has inspired. I link to the article in the notes and on the blog if you want to learn more about this. Kelly ended up leaving the school after two years and left for Atlanta, Georgia. He didn't drop out to attend another school in Atlanta. I believe he wanted to have access to more opportunities in fashion. Once he got there, he obviously had to find a way to support himself, and he got a job working at the American Veterans Thrift Shop. He used this opportunity to upcycle and redesign the donated garments in addition to working on his own original creations. The risk he took turned out to be triumphant as he went on to open up his very own thrift shop in Buckhead. He worked other jobs too, and not all of them were paid. He volunteered to design and create window displays for Issa Laurent Reeve Ghost Boutique. Kelly was also seizing other opportunities within the many facets of the fashion industry. Apparently, he even worked fashion shows at the Hilton in Atlanta with the supermodel Iman, who was up and coming at this point. Kelly established a clothing line and a modeling agency, both under the name of Longboy, before connecting with another legendary black supermodel, Pat Cleveland, in 1979. Cleveland was impressed with his designs and encouraged him to make his move to New York City. He moved to New York to enroll in school at the Parsons School of Design. He was given another scholarship that was unfortunately rescinded, and with that, he no longer had a way to pay to continue his courses. So unfortunately, he had to drop out after only completing a little over one semester. It sounds like he spent at least a year in the city, and after being unable to find work in any of the design houses, he left the city altogether. Overall, Kelly didn't feel supported by the fashion scene in New York, especially coming from the growing fashion hub of Atlanta, where he received so much love and support. I could definitely see some of the fashion houses looking down on him and his designs, especially as he was a black man from the South. Again, with the push of Pat Cleveland, he made his next and final move overseas. After this break, I'll let you know where he moved to and whether or not he found the support he was looking for. By the turn of the decade in 1980, Kelly found himself in another fashion capital. This time it was Paris, France. I'm sure Paris was a bit of a culture shock to say the least. For one, he did not know the language. Kelly had come far from Mississippi and had learned the ways of a couple of major American cities, but Paris was a huge change for him and he didn't know anyone that lived there permanently. 
In all my readings about Kelly, it was noted that he was very loved and also big about creating a community for himself and others, so to practically abandon yourself was probably a lot for him. For his early beginnings in Paris, I got some of my information from interviews with Dr. Eric Darnell Pitcher, who is currently working on his book due to release in the fall of 2023, Abundant Black Joy, The Life and Work of Patrick Kelly. Similar to what Kelly did in New York City, he went to various design houses to look for work. To make ends meet, he would sell clothes he designed, specifically coats on the street, since those would be the easiest to try on. Eventually, he teamed up with an American friend who would later become his creative assistant, Liz Goodrum, who now goes by Miss Liz Goodrum. They got a job making up to 1,000 costumes a week for a nightclub called Le Palace, and they continued the job until the club closed in 1982. After the club closed, he went back to selling his designs on the street and at a flea market. In an interview by Bonnie Johnson for People Magazine in 1987, Kelly says that it was at the flea market that he saw the fabric that would lead to his big break, so to speak. The fabric was a bulk of cotton tube jersey. Some of you listening might be wondering what the big deal about this jersey fabric was. I don't think this is related at all, but Coco Chanel did make a name for herself by being the first fashion designer to use jersey fabric. Kelly had a great relationship with fashion models, and because of that, he was able to look at the cotton tube jersey fabric and see opportunities. I pieced this together from the People interview and the interview with Pitchard. Kelly made two dresses out of this fabric, which sounds pretty basic, to be honest, at first, but if you remember me mentioning, his grandmother would mend his clothes and the buttons wouldn't match. To bring life to these two dresses, he sewed a bunch of colorful non-matching buttons on these dresses, and it became his signature. The dresses were affordable and perfect for the working model who was going from city to city on ghost feet. A tube dress is easy to don and dock and as a model, people are going to take notice of you whether it's photographers, modeling agencies, runway casting agents, and of course, designers. Kelly was an all work and no play, and as corny as it sounds, in 1983, Kelly found love in the city of love by way of a photographer's representative by the name of Bajoran Amalan. Through his partner, he met the owner of Victoire Boutique, Francois Chesnay, in 1985. This boutique made a lot of designers, meaning that they set the trend and helped them become well-known. This meeting was a successful encounter, and with that, Kelly became the first American designer to be sold at Victoire Boutique. Kelly was now designing wool dresses, which were the ones that caught the eye of Chesnay, and then Chesnay went on to suggest Kelly to the fashion editor for Elle France, Nicole Prasad. Croissant loved Kelly's designs so much that the February 1985 edition of the magazine, so much that the February 1985 edition of Elle France featured Patrick Kelly and his designs in a six-page spread. And orders began to roll in quickly. Kelly's label scaled quickly as well, and he started taking couture orders for celebrity clientele like Cicely Tyson, Bette Davis, Grace Jones, and Madonna, just to name a few. In the Pupil interview, it's mentioned that in addition to his own collection, he was balancing 17 freelance jobs with just a staff of eight people, and he was also working 12-hour days. Another Black American term Black Parisian comes to mind whenever I think about Kelly, Josephine Baker. And like Kelly, she spent some time in New York City, too. One of Kelly's most remembered designs is inspired by Josephine Baker, and it was created in collaboration with David Spada a jewelry designer who was based in New York City. This look was for Kelly's fall-winter 1986 collection, and the design is inspired by the iconic banana costume, and it was originally worn by Kelly's close friend and model, Pat Cleveland. 
At this point, I'm sure Kelly was feeling as if all of his hard work paid off. He had established a community in Paris, and he was continuing to pay homage to his grandmother Ethel through his designs. He received a huge backing in 1987 to buy a now-defunct fashion conglomerate by the name of Warnico. The company has since been absorbed by TV8. With a backing, especially a financial one, comes more growth opportunities, and now Kelly's label was being sold worldwide, and his sales almost reached $7 million in one year. Almost a year ago from now, in July 2021, Kirby John Raymond, the designer and founder of Pierre Moss, presented his collection after being invited by the Chambres Sénégal de la Haute Couture. With this invitation and show, he became the first Black American to be invited to present during Pierre's Haute Couture. Back in 1988, Kelly was only three years out from when he showed his first collection. Patrick Kelly was admitted to the Chambre Senegal du Prêt-à-Côté de Couturiers et de Créateurs de Mode. He was admitted with the support of his friend and fellow designer, Sonia Rico. When some of the other 44 members appeared to be a bit hesitant to accept Kelly, I believe this is when Patrick Kelly's label became Patrick Kelly Pierce. With his minutes, he became the first American, not first Black American, the first American to be accepted to this governing body of French fashion to the highest level on the ready-to-wear side. This was a huge accomplishment and groundbreaking for the boy from Pittsburgh, Mississippi, and I hate that he did not get to relish in this moment longer and to grow on to create even more inspiring design. The following year, in 1989, Kelly was working and fulfilling his creative and contractual duties. He fell ill in August of that year and was too sick to continue preparations for his October runway show and in a blow, Warnico canceled their agreement. It was kept a secret in attempts to keep the business running, but behind closed doors, Kelly was dying of AIDS. On January 1st, 1990, Patrick Kelly succumbed to complications from AIDS. I tried to explain a bit earlier, but you still might be trying to figure out how this relates to crime. But as I mentioned at the start, it is a bit of a reach. It's criminal or a shame to me that a black designer that reached one of the highest forms of flattery you can possibly get has very little accessible information on their history. I've been digging for information on Patrick Kelly and other black designers for years, and I found some great information, but I'm so grateful for the work Eric Darnell pictured. I will be one of the first to order his book, I'm sure. I wonder how many people in this industry have been erased or at least had attempts to be erased because their deaths weren't fashionable, especially given that there's an endless amount of information on people that were actual criminals in this industry. It's a shame that the fashion industry actively worked to erase the history of members of the community that lost their lives to AIDS and then seemingly attempted to just erase the fact that they did that. But then they put on a front to help showcase that they were helping to end the AIDS epidemic. It should be considered a crime in this country to turn your backs on people in marginalized communities when they are the ones predominantly affected by ugly viruses and diseases. I didn't get some of Kelly's more controversial designs in this episode, but they will be discussed in next week, so stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Most Fashionable Crime. Let me know what you thought. I will be uploading a video to the YouTube channel this week where I'll talk more about mental health and the fashion industry. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss anything. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and leave a five-star rating or a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while you're on the YouTube channel, don't forget to subscribe. All my sources are linked in the notes. In case you're wondering, this podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Karen. All of the music you heard in this episode is from Epidemic Sound.